everyone. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Sharon Butler, a painter and publisher of the art blogazine Two Coats of Paint. This is a Two Coats of Paint conversation. This past week, Two Coats of Paint published several pieces, and uh, if you want to read them, they're at www.twocoatsofpaint.com. And um, today, we're having a conversation with Catherine Howe and Zachary Citrin to talk about artists, particularly painters, are like long-distance runners, slowly building endurance over years spent in solitary studio practice. Zachary, born in 1992 in New Jersey, is a painter who lives and works in Brooklyn. He got his BFA from Rutgers University in 2014 and worked as a set designer in New York before getting an MFA in painting at the New York Academy of Art in 2019. At the Academy, he was awarded the Altos de Chavon Teaching Residency in the Dominican Republic and the 2020 Chubb Fellowship. Zachary's work has been featured in publications such as the New York Times and the Hollywood Reporter. His work can be found in various collections throughout the U.S. and Europe, and he recently had a solo show at Massey Klein in New York City. Hi, Zachary. Hello. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's great to have you here. And our, uh, our second guest, Catherine Howe, was born in, she's very lucky to be a 1959 baby. She has extensive history of exhibitions across the U.S. and beyond, and is represented in New York by Winston Walker Fine Art. Her work has been discussed in numerous publications, including the New York Times, Art Forum, Art in America, Flash Art, Art Critical, Bomb, White Wall Magazine, The New Art Examiner, The Los Angeles Times, and of course, Two Coats of Paint. Catherine works in Manhattan and a farmhouse in the Hudson Valley. She, she met Zachary at the New York Academy, where she advised graduate thesis students, taught experimental printmaking, and directed the critical studies program for 20 years. Prior to that, Catherine was curator of exhibitions at Hall Walls Contemporary Art Space in Buffalo and associate director of White Columns in New York. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Sharon. I just Thanks wanted, for joining us. Yeah, I want to thank you for inviting me, and thank you, Zach, for coming. Really appreciate that. Glad um, to be here. I didn't just meet Zach at the Academy. I pinned him down and made him listen to me in various classes <laughs> and critiques, so he's probably so sick of me that this is just, like, too much for him, but I hope not. No, never. It, I hope. All right, Catherine, you've been painting for nearly 40 years, uh, um, so why don't you kick off the conversation? Yeah, I got... I got tired just listening to my, my bio there. It makes me feel quite, quite mature. Um, well, I started thinking about this issue of long-term studio practice, long-term. And because this is two coats of paint, I'm not going to feel guilty focusing on painting, mainly painting here. And what, what kind of really got me going on this was I tuned in to hear a panel discussion with uh, Robert Storr, and Douglas Driespoon um, on the Brooklyn Rail podcast uh, a couple weeks ago. And they were discussing Robert's solo show of his paintings up in Buffalo at a new gallery called Kingfish. And my hometown is Buffalo. I grew up in the shadow of the Albright Knox Art Gallery, as they say. And um, it just really excited me to be able to listen to this and that there was new galleries popping up in downtown Buffalo. Anyway, I tuned in and... um, it was just very moving for me to hear this man, Robert Storr, who is you know, so accomplished and so well-known as a curator and an educator, dean of the Yale Art School, chief curator at the Museum of Modern Art, 
And the curator, the first American curator of the Venice Biennale in 2007, very controversial show called Think with the Senses that had record attendance and had all kinds of, um, you know, installation work, like violent video uh, war in war-torn countries, like very provocative political art, very disturbing work, brutal work. Uh, it caused a lot of um, controversy. Um, the conservative critics, you know, panned it. Um, and it just started, it started, it made me think, here is this, this man who has all this experience and had to deal with the public for so many years. He's exactly 10 years older than us. He's 49, born in 49. And now he chooses to spend his time alone in his studio making these very slow, thoughtful, rather humble abstract paintings. And the, the, the seeming discord between those two lives really struck me as, as a powerful example of why I chose a life in the studio, in that it's intensely personal, intensely concentrated, um, and you don't feel the pressure. I'm assuming that, you know, I know, I can see by what he's done over the years that he, he felt some pressure, of course, to be fair, to not let his own aesthetic choices, you know, steer the boat all the time, to, to show work that was uh, uh, current and politically relevant, et cetera, et cetera. But in his own studio, now at this point, at the, I don't say the, the end, the last chapter of his life, it makes it sound very dire and sad, but it's true. Um, he chooses a very different life that is connected to making these paintings. And uh, it just got me thinking about how the trajectory of one's life changes in the studio over the years. And originally, I wanted to get someone much older than me uh, so I could be the young ingenue. But then I realized that might be difficult. <laughs> I did find someone 20 years older. But then I thought, no, 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 no. Be brave, Catherine. Be the old artist. And then I thought of Zachary, who um, just stood out right away uh, as a student who was, who, was, who was basically took over my painting for class and did all the critiques. And I just sat back and smiled because he was already so good. So I thought, let's let's get a youngster up here who just had his first real solo show in New York, and let's compare notes on what what our motivations are and and what our our life is really like in the studio. So I'll just, I'll just toss it over to you at this point, Zach. What do you think? Well, it's uh, there's sort of I've been thinking a lot about kind of the question of why choose to do this you brought up sort of the question of why why do we choose to spend all of this time alone painting and I think it's funny it's, it's painting is sort of has a lot working against it it's sort of not the necessarily a practical thing to do and it's a messy thing to do I have paint on on all of my clothing even when I try not to have paint on my clothing so there's arguments about it being sort of not the most culturally relevant thing to do and I think it's not I was thinking, is it despite all of these things is why I am choosing to paint? But I think it's 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 kind of because of all of these things is why I'm choosing to paint. There's something sort of just really actively engaging about all of the contradictions in painting. I agree. You know, that, that makes perfect sense. And that what that's what I found so moving about imagining uh, a 73-year-old man, Robert Storr, who's so accomplished and was so out in the world, choosing a more hermetic existence in the studio for this chapter of his life. And I, I didn't discuss the actual talk. The talk itself filled me with, with mixed emotions, contradictory emotions, because on the one hand, the painting talk was 
so beautiful. I actually have a quote here. This is a statement he made that was connected to his recent exhibition that closed at the end of January. There is no end of painting, nor of any set of options related to it. There is just painting, fast and furious or slow and steady, and not infrequently both in alternating currents. These panels or proposals for paintings were realized in fits and starts during the arduous course of the past six years. They have been my fragile barrier reef against the tsunami of negativity we've all endured. And so at this point, I'm like collapsed on the floor in tears, like, yes, yes, that's it. But at the same time, I'm thinking, here's a bunch of old guys sitting around talking about aesthetics and how they feel during the eight hours while they're staring at their painting. And it's all the stuff that seduced me into wanting to do it. You know, when I got my master's degree, Rob Storr has an MFA in painting from the Chicago Art Institute. So he, he's, a, he's an art, he began as an artist and he's ending as an artist. Um, and I just started thinking, yes, the pressure to be ashamed of certain impulses and uh, versus like what you instinctively really want in your studio. And the fact that perhaps you have an obligation to the outside world in many situations, including curating, teaching, lecturing. But in your studio, you really only have an obligation to yourself in some perhaps overly romantic, but still true way. Makes any sense. Well, you know, if I could jump in here, the thing I, I found very interesting about that conversation was at the end when he said basically that his paintings are about doubt that he wants them to convey some kind of doubt and uncertainty after all of these years. That, that also, is still that rang at the true. forefront. Yes. yes, 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 yes. That rang true to me. I mean, I, I feel the same way. But it's not, it's not like a negative thing, though. It's, it's a doubt that inspires curiosity and propels you forward. And it's also well, really honest. To me, it brings up the feeling, too, of like if the, the sort of question of if I knew why I was doing this. Maybe it's a fear, but maybe if I knew why I was doing this, then I wouldn't do it anymore. It's sort of the doing it is kind of the discovering of the why am I doing this. That's sort of interesting. You know, Catherine, I would have you, have you ever reached points where you just thought, I just don't want to do this anymore? Honestly, no. It's, it's, it's so, I mean, I've been in despair over what, how, how do I make myself, how, how can I live a decent, happy life while doing this? The vicissitudes of a studio practice include, you know, extreme highs and lows. I'm very thankful I've had some of the highs, you know, shows, reviews, interesting friends, discussions, but then they're lows, gallery closing, crazy dealers who steal your work, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if you, if you manage to have a life and a career over 20, 30, 40 years, you know, bad things are going to happen. No, I've always needed and wanted to do it. It's, it. it's so deeply connected to my vision of who I am. Um, and, and I think that's because it came out of a, a, a true, you know, seduction and desire. Uh, I keep resorting to this romantic language, but that's just being honest. That's how it happened for me. Uh, you know, as a child going to the Albright Knox Museum and seeing those heroic, I still, I still think they're heroic in some way, um, you know, kill all the old white men, but still, those de Koonings and 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 um, the, the other and the, the, even the Clifford Still paintings. Apparently, he was the king of cantankerous old men. Um, 
as even as a little kid, they just moved me so much, and they were so mysterious and sublime. I was I was completely hooked. So again, moving into an intellectual sphere of teaching and and and, and maturing, um, and critiquing that whole modernist paradigm, I never lost a kind of sincere, deep affection for it, in spite of. Uh, the work that needed to be done to dismantle it as well. So contradictory forces uh, throughout uh, my life as a painter. I came to becoming a painter. It was sort of art was kind of always around when I was growing up. Um, my family is artistic. There's a lot of creative people in my family. And I I was sort of always drawn to painting. I ended up in undergrad uh, studying set design in a theater department. And it felt sort of like almost a more a more practical way to make artwork um, that felt kind of more guided toward a, a career. Um, I, I I think that I really sort of secretly loved painting, but I had a lot of fear about kind of pursuing that um, past college. Um, and so I ended up working in set design for a while and it was still kind of uh, painting that kept sort of percolating up and kind of, I felt sort of pulled back toward uh, doing it. And I hadn't had a lot of painting experience uh, going into grad school. I was sort of more of a, a fan of painting and painters, but just kind of had a, a real sort of gut feeling of that this was where I needed to be and what I needed to be doing. Um, and it was it was sort of through grad school and sort of uh, getting a kind of academic and anatomical art training um, that I kind of felt able to to kind of take that and and run with it and sort of um, use that as kind of the the core to the work that I'm making now. I'm curious, Zach, um, when I when I jumped off the cliff and, you know, went into an MFA program in, oh, I guess it would have been 1980-ish, um, I, I felt like I had nowhere to go but up. You know, my family was sort of aspiring middle class, um, no art interest whatsoever. So anything I did was going to be vastly different and out of the realm of normal for my family. So I just like packed my stuff in a van and, you know, took off to New York at a certain point with like every cliche romantic, you know, idea of what a painter did. Like if I found like a, you know, um, um, a garret, like it really was like a La Baham garret on West 12th mm -hmm. Street. It was an old horse uh, stable with like a north skylight and no heat and no, you know, it was like incredible. I found it in the village voice. Like it was just every romantic cliche. I'm thinking, mm -hmm. okay, so you know, you're half my age, and you know, and you, you're coming, you're coming into the world as an artist, as a painter, at a very different time. Did you feel like the pull and the tug of, oh, I should do something more relevant to the world? You know, I should, I should somehow be more directly engaged in working in a practical field that might somehow save the water table from rising, or something in social justice or just, I just wondered, do you feel, did you feel any kind of pressure in, in that direction? Yeah, I think so. I think, 
I felt some pressure and some guilt in that direction. Um, but I also think what's interesting is it feels like the kind of fantasy of, of the abstract expressionist working in those uh, studios still really kind of held for me when I was kind of uh, um, looking into what to, what to pursue. And that fantasy really, I think still existed. Um, and I think, I think the, the kind of pressure of, of kind of doing work that's more, maybe more relevant or more socially uh, justice oriented is there. And I, I think what, what it, it feels important to me to kind of, uh, be well informed and well read and and a socially aware person and it also feels important to me to kind of when i'm in the studio to leave to leave that out of it um and i think that feels like it it, it feels sort of like an impossible thing to do to kind of have my studio be a separate space from the world but i think that's what kind of keeps it that keeps kind of a really kind of uh like good and crunchy dissonance to the artwork to sort of really be denying almost the the world outside when I'm inside my studio working. I mean, I, I think it was Oscar Wilde who said some, something like, you know, you know, without, without beauty, there can be no empathy or something to that effect. So perhaps, you know, you're, you're instinctively hoping and, and living out this, this hope that in pursuing an in uh, a, a quiet contemplative practice of translating the world into something beyond language in painting um it's incredibly it's an optimistic act it's it's hoping to produce something that will um i'll use the word trigger in a positive way will trigger a response in the beholder that makes them feel perhaps more human, more empathetic, um, even happier. Like if, if someone is happier and um, um, somehow thrilled by something, maybe they are a little kinder to the, to the next person. Again, this sounds pie in the sky, hopeful, and it's not the same as volunteering in a soup kitchen. I realize that. But um, I know that in my own life, if I read a poem or look at a painting that inspires me and makes me feel deeply grateful to be alive, I, I do better in the world. Is that, is that too much to hope for, do you think? I mean, that feels very true to me too. And it feels like uh, kind of optimism and, and making paintings as a way to kind of build empathy is very, um, it's very present, so it, it's very relevant because it's very present. It's something that someone is actively um, kind of, uh, when someone's looking at a painting, they're kind of very, very presently engaging. There's another huge um, cataclysmic um, sea change that happened between my MFA and emerging artist time and yours, and that is technology. Um, I had no, there was no cell phones. When I was in my, my, my studio, my garret, um, I had to walk two blocks to get to a, to a, a payphone. Payphones were these things on the corner where you put actual coins into them at the time and you got to make a phone call. Um, 
so since then, obviously, paintings are competing on social media with images. They're, they've become just images. They're flattened out and are competing with images of all sorts in this in this sphere of of, of digital media on the internet, and that's got to have it certainly has an effect on how we view it, how we make it, how we conceive of it, and I'm I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that. Well, I think it definitely it feels like something that's sort of always there in the background or the foreground. There's sort of always always Instagram to scroll through and I think sometimes it can feel distracting and sometimes it can feel um kind of helpful to realize there are all these other people out there that are sort of on the same path um I think in terms of the the work itself it feels it feels important to me to 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 realize that I'm not making only images even though they can become images, but they're also, it feels like I, I still feel very aware of kind of making a painting that has a presence in the physical world. Do, do you young people um, still value <laughs> um, going out to actual physical gallery spaces and getting in there with the work itself as, as much as perhaps I'm I'm asking you to guess as much as perhaps my generation did. Do you think? I I, I value it. Um, I don't know. It's 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 um, still feels like a different experience to kind of be out in the world, um, seeing artwork. And I think I think in in moments like during the pandemic, during the lockdown, there was something really kind of helpful about having work online to see and people online to talk to when it was wasn't possible to see things or see people in person um but i think it's a it feels like a, a different experience to sort of be scrolling on my phone versus to be out in the world at a, a gallery or a museum so you don't think it's you don't think it's going to go away you think you don't I, think that this 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 big ugly art market is going to be solely fueled fueled by um images of work and people will um, l lose the ability to distinguish the difference between physical objects and images of objects. I hope not. Um, <laughs> okay, this is where I get like bitter and depressed and just like <laughs> spin the worst possible tale of the future. No, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. Um, on, on, a on, a, on a practical level, um, another big difference uh, in our generation was when I loaded up my van and tricked a boy who thought I liked him, but I really didn't to drive me in his van over, you know, over the George Washington Bridge. And, you know, I found my studio in the Village Voice and all that. Uh -huh. um, there was still, there were still studios available at, at reasonable prices. And you could get a couple of roommates and, you know, get a loft and you could do that. Um, you know, you are doing really well working in a in a Brooklyn apartment where you sacrifice your kitchen instead of having your perfect copper saucepans lined up. You've got like jars of brushes and, you know, it, it's you're, you know, you're sacrificing a lot of, you know, you, know you, you, you live you live like a perpetual college student in a dorm room when you're an artist. You know, you don't get to have, you know, this 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 glorious separation between a beautiful home and and a giant loft studio and you you, you know you really are consciously making a choice to live in a way that's pretty strange 
compared to what a lot of other young people would want to do, which is to be financially successful and, and, you know, have all the trappings of that. Um, You may get them when you're older. Like, I have to admit, I do have a house now and a studio, but but the price I pay is I'm old. So um, I'm just wondering if, if, do you and your friends talk about that sort of thing? Yeah, it's really a, a, the, a kind of reality that we all have to deal with. And it, it felt especially kind of like um, something to, to figure out kind of leaving grad school and, and leaving kind of the comfort of grad school studios where we were all in one building together, kind of working in, in cubicle-like art studios around each other and and then leaving there and figuring out what to do next and kind of how to keep the momentum going from there. Um, and I think one of the the worries that I had was sort of, there was kind of a, a performative nature that I found while painting in grad school, knowing that that my studio was sort of open to everybody else on the floor and people could kind of walk by and I could be seen working and then now working in inside my studio apartment i was kind of worried how that uh performative element of the work how that would change if that would go away or if that would kind of transform into something different um so just it it feels like something the this the way that the space influences the work feels very worth uh kind of examining so how did you address that? Like, how did you um, create more of a performative aspect? Or did you want to? Or did you, I should ask? Um, I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes it kind of comes in the form of what music I'll have on. I'll put on some loud, like, Liza Minnelli or some some show tune that feels like sort of the uh, kind of... Um, performative uh, atmosphere it, it, it creates. But then there's also something about working now in privacy that I kind of, um, that lets, I think lets the work be become more uh, internal than it was before. My generation, you know, we, we, can, we consistently sought support and approval um, and subjected ourselves to criticism through studio visits. And we probably respected authority and believed in critics um, and the, necess- uh, the need for criticism more perhaps than your generation does. And you know, I've had many, many um, unsatisfying or perhaps in some cases even devastating studio visits um, by making myself vulnerable and opening up the studio for that purpose. Um, maybe that's been replaced in some ways through critique on social media and likes and comments, but they tend to be all positive. And I know, Sharon, you you just had a recent um, discussion about the lack of criticality and criticism these days at, or or how to, how to not be nice in the art world, or I forgot the terminology, but that was the gist of it. And that's a, a huge issue now. Um, you wouldn't dare, you know, go on Instagram and say, what are you doing? This is really weak compared to what you're doing before. I don't understand it. You would never say anything like that. You'd say, great, I love it. It's so cool. Or maybe you wouldn't even bother using words. You just press a little emoji and, and, and send it off into the world. So I guess, you know, what about what about studio visits? What about um, creating a community of artists that you invite over or go to their studios? Is that important for you? 
Yeah, and that's something that doesn't feel like a, a replaceable thing. It feels that's felt very important, sort of leaving school and realizing, oh, I need to sort of do this myself now. This thing that was a given of having a community of people around, I need to kind of find that um, outside of school. And it's felt really, it's been really, really rewarding and, and to find friends who we can visit each other's studios and talk very openly about each other's work. And it's been something to kind of learn how to do post-grad school. Um, and there's something that I, I there's, there's an element of, of working from my apartment that I really love about that, that it's, it feels really, I, I like sort of um, that I can invite people into my home, which is also my studio. Um, and it feels like a really uh, kind of, there's there's the vulnerable side to it, but there's also something um, that feels really special about it. Um, when I was teaching, um, I should mention that I just stopped teaching one year ago, so it's still I can, I can still remember <laughs> um, a couple, a few years ago, like five maybe. I was uh, remarking to um, one of one of the grad students, and this is before we became afraid to like speak, you know, before teaching became so um, fraught with danger. I was able to be more honest, and I said something like it seems to me that so many of these students, like they aren't trying very hard. Like they aren't making that much work. They, they, they seem to be so kind of relaxed about the whole thing. And my, by golly, in my day, we made work. We tried so hard. We worked like our lives depended on it. Like it was this, this aspirational attitude of go, go, go work, work, work. Like you got, you got to build something. You got to, you got to get ahead. You got to compete. You've got to put yourself out there. And the student answered me by saying, well, you don't understand, like, you know, we don't have the same promise. We don't have, the world does not offer us the same opportunities that your generation had. It's, 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 things are much more unlikely to, to turn out that way. So we just have lower expectations. <laughs> and I was really struck by that. I, I, I wonder, do you have any thoughts on, on his answer? Um, that we have, have a lower expectation. I don't know. I think it feels like a really kind of personal thing and everyone of course comes from a, a different um place and that influences their what they are able or or to do and um I don't know for me it feels really like I am very kind of whether it's it's a delusion or not or a fantasy I'm very happy to kind of stay in this space of believing um while I am painting from my little studio apartment, believing that I am in a, a, a giant loft of an abstract expressionist. And there's something about kind of keeping that uh, fantasy alive that feels worth it to me. I made, I made Zach, I requested that Zach watch the 1970s documentary, um, Painter's Painting, um, which I think, Peter, I think we talked about that briefly. You brought it up in one of the uh, panels you were on. And it's just all of all of the um, incredible, like lofty, um, romantic ideals, like like in, in in this kind of beautiful blurry color. Like they're all smoking all the time. They they all have the same giant studio, and they all sit in the, the same kind of comfortable but crusty chair. And they are completely um, impervious to doubt. Like they're just they're just they're just. Um, uh, uh, espousing uh, their 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 confidence and every everything they say, 
And it's, it's like a drug. You watch it and you're like, oh, you know, I can't even imagine feeling that way in the studio. Uh, it, so much has changed since then. Um, and so it's, it's really uh, compelling for me and interesting to hear, to hear you say that, you know, that you also are still seduced by, by some of this, uh, even though you know there are plenty of reasons to critique it. And um, so I feel a little less guilty about my own um, feelings. <laughs> so thank you. It's it's funny. It's sort of like, I think I, I had said to you my first reaction, I got a, a few minutes into this uh, documentary and was sort of not to the point of rolling my eyes, but just thinking, oh my, these old men all taking themselves so seriously. And then I get in a little bit farther and really am just feel very taken by what they're saying and doing and start to really, there's something feel like there's something to it and there's something that I really am, am convinced about it. It's time to take a break and give a brief shout to a few Two Coats sponsors. At the Painting Center, located at 547 West 27th Street, Suite 500 in Chelsea, two solo shows are on view through February 25th. Lisa Pressman, Things That Were Never Said, and Chase Cantwell, The Portrait Project. In the project space, Karen Nelson-Fried and Mary Beth Rothman, Uncommon Narratives. At Prince Street Gallery, also located at 527 West 27th Street on the 5th floor, Behind the Pale, new work by Renee Katami, on view through February 25th. On the weekend of April 22nd and April 23rd, save the date, it's Dumbo Open Studios. Studios will be open. Uh, see, you'll, you'll see artists who have worked in Dumbo for decades, as well as those participating in temporary artist residency programs. At Pratt Manhattan Gallery, Sin Chen Huang, The Data We Called Home, curated by Professor Linda Laura Lazen, Assistant Chair, Department of Digital Arts, is on view through March 4th, located at 144 West 14th Street. At the New York Studio School, sign up for an intercession drawing marathon. Uh, it's virtual this year. Drawing on your past, the mind's eye, with Graham Nixon and guests. It begins on March 23rd, and spots are limited to 20 students. So enroll today to secure your spot and join them from your studio anywhere in the world. And to all the listeners out there, please encourage your galleries, nonprofit organizations, art programs, and universities to advertise on Two Coats of Paint. For info, send an info to twocoatsofpaint at gmail.com with advertising in the subject line. Through reader contributions and advertising, we are able to fund all of our projects, so we really appreciate your support. Thanks. We're back. Um, where were we in the conversation, Catherine? Well, I, I um, so I was thinking in terms of generational difference, um, uh, significant difference, uh, the, the language that Zach was using about, well, I can only speak for myself and my experience and that kind of incredible sensitivity to um, not overstepping or assuming anything about anyone is a, is a powerful uh, indicator of his, of his generation and younger generations, whereas um, the, the abstract expressionist generation and perhaps Peter Storr's generation and perhaps my generation, I'm sorry, Robert Storr, um, you know, 
we 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 would not hesitate so much to make generalizations and to take on kind of loftier, grander statements about what is true for all, what is true of all painting, what is true of painting for everyone. Um, you know, th there were experts and there were universals and there were standards and and all of these things have come crashing down now so that everything is relative and everything comes back to the individual and um, it's a much, uh, it's a much, it's a, it's a very different landscape that is perhaps has much more promise, but it's also uh, difficult to navigate uh, in, in a public forum, I think. Right. Peter has joined us. Peter, did you have something you wanted to, yeah, from the LA airport? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, well, the follow-up on uh, both painters painting and in general, it's been said is uh, the thing that stick, stuck out uh, when I first saw the documentary was, uh, I forget who it was, maybe Philip Pavia, who said that uh, at the time in the 50s, the art world was, uh, wasn't really an art world. It, 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 I think he characterized it as a primitive social experiment, <laughs> something along those lines, you know. And, and now we have, uh, find ourselves in a, such a different world, it's unbelievable. Uh, especially with all these art fairs and galleries having multiple spaces in, in, in a city and, and uh, different cities and countries, etc. It's really a difficult thing to really comprehend. Uh, but I think uh, the era where Catherine and myself uh, entered, uh, which I believe, well, for me, it was the 70s, uh, might be similar for Catherine, uh, it was still something... Uh, that was manageable, that you could go and, and uh, see pretty much everything casually. And, and, and now it's just, uh, it, it's just way beyond it. it, it you know, we, we had that talk about uh, museums we haven't been to uh, in a while. <laughs> uh, it, it used to be that we'd be able to go to museums consistently and, and uh, not worry that you're ma uh, missing major shows and that, that, that sort of thing. So the world ha has definitely changed in, uh, in terms of being able to see everything you want to see and, you know, how much is enough to see and, and all that kind of stuff. But I do, wanna, I do wanna mention about the doubt thing. The, the uh, uh, I think it was Greenberg was talking about uh, Hoffman, who did not have a, a uh, uh, one person's show till he was like almost 60. And uh, I think, Kooning said it was uh, he was either late 40s or early 50s and, and one after another you know they did not get uh, that kind of a exposure a gallery exposure to what we would consider really late in life right now you know uh, I mean that's what really stood out for me with that documentary that these people put in their time you know uh, well after art school before they uh, got a, a one-person show. Well, I think that that's actually true because I do remember in grad school there was this expectation that you would work for a bit, you know, that you weren't going to go out and approach galleries and so forth because you just did not have the experience and your work had not, had not risen to that level yet. And uh, I think that that's completely changed, you know, with 
um, galleries coming into the MFA programs and things like that. There's a lot more opportunity for younger artists. My students act, my students considered, many of them considered themselves failures if they weren't already snapped up by a gallery in their second year of grad school. And, and it became like this hysterical pressure on the rest of the students and it got worse and worse and worse year after year. I see Elizabeth uh, has turned on her microphone. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi. I just, uh, I appreciate it. I just want to say uh, the thing I was thinking about, and I was very happy to be thinking about it as I listened to Zach and as thoughts about uh, what Catherine was saying earlier, especially after hearing Rob Store um, in the program that I'm actually waiting to be able to hear at a later date. Um, and I think the word I have that no one uses um, is faith. Like a, a studio practice that you've given time to it essentially is a faith-based practice. No one really wants to use that word. And that time spent alone where things either coalesce or, or it doesn't is without that, there would be no, no, uh, no ability to participate you know, with one's work in the world. And it's a, it's a choice you make, and you can make it from a very young age or a not-so-young age. But it's been wonderful seeing that touched on here in, um, in the ways in which you're, you're, you're all kind of describing it. And um, hearing the perspective age-wise, uh, I'm very glad, Catherine, that you brought up Rob, because um, Rob Store because he's an interesting example of someone who actually... Uh, never stopped making work, who always, even as he was a public figure, always carved out this much time, you know, as much time as he could. And he, interestingly enough, uh, that created an, an incredible empathy in him for, for artists. Uh, you know, he was always incredibly approachable. And he was from the time he was a student. I overlapped with him in school. And he really only became more himself. And um, it sounds like Zach is on his way <laughs> to becoming more himself. And uh, we've all kind of benefited from that kind of um, attitude. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for sharing. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Elizabeth Condon. Hi, Sharon Butler. Hi, everyone. Zachary, Catherine, thank you for this topic. Peter, Elizabeth, your comments are really great. Um, and I agree with Elizabeth. I think that that painting is... The more I paint and the more I stay by myself in my studio painting, I realize how deeply imbricated painting is with all, I mean, obviously we all know it's a part of our lives, but it is so political at its very core and yet so faith-based at the same time. And I think what, I'm, what I mean is that in the 50s when the abstract expressionist movement sort of built the American market, there was an emphasis on psychoanalysis and the primacy of the individual, which was in keeping with American ideals in the world post-World War II. And I think as time has gone on, we've moved, I think people were talking about technology before Catherine, um, we've moved to a technological kind of survey-based society in which I know a lot of film people who have moved into the art world and they, they've literally had lessons from the world's greatest directors on how to make stories. So their image making is constructed from a survey-like survey -like knowledge and technological grasp of material that they can just make powerful 
images that roll things all in one, whereas the the kind of larvae like faith-based painter crawls along looking for their true mirror outside of social conditioning. So uh, it's a craven state of doubt at times. I'm sure you'll all agree. But I think that those are big differences that go into the faith-based and technology. And I deeply appreciate the discussion in general. Well put, very succinct, thank you. Thank you. We have Janice Caswell wants to come up um, while she's getting situated. I just want to say I agree with the notion that it's a faith-based process, you know, especially on a daily basis in the studio, you know, when you're going through some sort of transitional period with your work or, you know, just have a difficult day and you just know that, the, you know, over time you learn that the next day it could be something completely different. Hi, Janice. Hi, Sharon. Hi, everybody. This has been really interesting for me. I have an unconventional path to becoming an artist. So that sort of puts me in the generation of Sharon and Catherine, but the art experience of Zachary. It's funny, I I guess, like when it comes to digital and the, the connection to digital and all of that, like when I really started getting serious about taking art classes and really following that, I was also learning, you know, Photoshop and InDesign. And um, I was seeing things, I was understanding um, the importance of digital. Um, the, you know, the internet had kind of started up pretty early, I guess. Wasn't that before the 90s, like in the 80s? Yeah, so it's like a weird... Um, I'm in between. My my life, my experiences really are that of someone older, but my art life and art experience and my my being an artist are really not of that generation. I never had those experiences that someone else might have had um like in the 80s for example. Yeah. So that's really all I wanted to say. I just I just keep getting sort of like, oh, yeah, I get that on this side. And, oh, yeah, I get that on that side. Um, but n neither of them are really me, or they're both me, I guess. Thanks, Janice. So something that we haven't really talked about is the notion of struggle. And I think that that is something that we grew up with that isn't really something that is thought much about by a younger generation of artists. Zachary, did you have any... Um, notions about struggle in the studio to me that that kind of brings back the conversation of faith in the studio and that it, it sort of focusing on the uh, faith of doing the work and trusting it then that will kind of um that yes there will be uh struggles um there will be struggles in the work there will be uh struggles financially choosing to to do this there there will be sort of practical struggles about the space and what can fit in the space, but but sort of um, leaning on faith element is sort of a way to uh, just, it feels like a, a way to just kind of accept and allow the struggles to be there. That that resonates for me as, as well. In terms of struggle, it can set you free. I mean, the word, okay, the faith-based phrase makes me so uncomfortable. I completely agree with everything we've said, but it just reminds me of so many conservative pundits using it in a really different way. So it's hard for me to say it. Um, can we say illogical or irrational? Um, that sounds too negative, though. But uh, 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 I 
I hit rock bottom around 2008 where um, I'd lost my faith in my work. Um, I'm sure everyone usually has some bad year they can point to if they've survived a 30 or 40 year uh, trajectory in the studio. Anyway, my bad year was right around there, right around 2007, 2008. Um, where I hated what I was making. I felt tremendous pressure to fit into the New York Academy, making realist work in some way, and it just wasn't me. And I wasn't strong enough to resist it because of, of the, 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 the milieu there was so um, powerful. And I was, the only, I was such the odd man out in that I was a woman. Um, and I lost it. But then what set me free, what got me going again was, I guess it was faith. It was you know, I'm going to put all of my energy and all of my ego back into the actual work itself and shut everything else out, shut my door, shut my windows, and try to tune in to what I really want to make uh, and, and without any kind of um, exterior influence, which of course is impossible. But that's what I tried to do, and, and to, to, to a pretty large extent, that's what I did. And it required tremendous faith um and i had to summon it up from somewhere um so yeah that that really speaks to me what you said zach you know this brings up also Catherine talking about the um working at the new york academy people out in the audience don't know it's a very um traditional school in the interest in figure painting so um you know this idea of context is important too as you start out and then 10 years later you know your your work might be the talk of the town, and then another 10 years, and suddenly the conversation that you were, you know, totally in the center of has moved, and there's some other conversation is taking place. And, you know, you have the option of staying with what you're doing or moving toward the new conversation. I'm interested in the, um, you know, how people have thought about that and the shifting context. Hi, Elizabeth. That's a very big question. And you as a conversation starter with um, provisional, um, that's even more interesting. How I have experienced that. And I want to just circle back to faith for a minute in terms of the context in conversation to say that uh, you have to have a lot of faith when the conversation moves away, not so much in the primacy of the conversation that you happen to be in, but more um, in the sense that... Uh, Faith, maybe trust is a better word. Trust that you're going to find, that you're going to land somewhere. But I also think that the beauty of age and maybe, or maturity, I should say, an artistic maturity, is that there comes a point, I think, when you really stop caring. I mean, I am keenly interested in what people are doing and thinking about, but I can no longer accommodate the, sh the constant shift or what feels constant to me now shifting conversation I really just have to get on with my own direction which takes and rolls conversations into it but no longer can can turn sharp left to follow it's just I just it's not in me anymore and I, I don't I not, and it feels glorious to to break from that some of the big shifts you know the biggest shifts where i think that the artists had a difficult time responding what well one of them was the um abstract expressionists and their feelings when the pop artists started gaining the spotlight when rauschenberg and jasper johns were bringing in sort of everyday elements into their imagery 
and moving away from these grand philosophical notions. Scalding, scalding for them. They erased his drawing. Was it? Was that Jasper Johns who did that to de Kooning? Oh, right. Or was Rauschenberg. that Rauschenberg? I think it was Rauschenberg. He apparently asked permission, and um, Bill de Kooning apparently said, sure, go ahead. <laughs> I just, um, that was apparently uh, an all-out, pretty open conflict with um, some, some extreme rudeness. Um, the Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, de Kooning uh, biography, uh, Mark Stevens, right? So it's a great read uh, for, for that time period. If, if anyone's interested in, in kind of going deeper into what actually, you know, what the kind of what happened on the streets, like where were they drinking? What were they talking about? Uh, you know, what, what were they feeling when they were waiting in line to hang up their, their work in some group show and some, you know, storefront? It's, 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 it's all very familiar and yet obviously rooted in a, in a very different time. I think, you know, maybe our generation has it much easier because postmodernism, there's that expectation that really you can use whatever imagery suits your ideas. And so it's not quite as stark as the move from abstract expressionism to pop art. But there is the move towards figurative painting that has been difficult for a lot of people. I think it's it's not just figurative, it's 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 narrative, it's storytelling, and it goes... It goes back to what Elizabeth um, uh, Kahn was saying about uh, film-based, media-based, storytelling-based. Uh, it's it's a powerful uh, way of working that a uh, a subtle abstract painter like a Robert Storer, you know, it, it's like it's like a different it's a different paradigm. Um, it's it's apples and oranges. It's 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 almost I can't think of a way of reconciling it, except. Keep the faith, abstract painter. Keep the faith. <laughs> I do think that in the in the process of abstraction, that the I mean I think there's an element of transformation that happens in a painting. You know, you go through you go th you have to go through the experience of making the painting, and in that experience, there is um, there is a challenge, there is a struggle, um, there is an overcoming of that struggle. I know I sound like biblical here, but um, I do believe this, the paintings that always seem the most magic are either those that come right away or those that, in, that really are, are fought for quite, quite mightily. Anyway, um, where am I going to say that, um, yeah, that abstraction, that struggle within the process of abstraction is its own narrative. And so again, it's this kind of self, it's not really self, it's self as machine or self as painter, self as creator, whatever, self as mark making putter, but whatever the situation, it's about the construction of that painting, like looking at calligraphy and recreating it with your eyes. Whereas with, um, you know, storytelling, it's kind of a um, it's, it's also, it's subjective and twisted like Christina Quarles. I mean, she's not talking about the body in the same way that, uh, Lucian Freud would have been, but they both are coming from a very distinct point of view. And that point of view is the particularity of how they make the painting. So it's not that storytelling doesn't necessarily have that property of process in it, but it's, um, but when I think about Anna Park's charcoal drawings, um, I think about a kind of. I think a, a strongly of the relationship to photography in figuration now. I think photography is just a given in it. Uh, and maybe in the old process days, um, painting from a photograph was verboten. I don't know. 
Yeah, you know, has anybody seen the Derek Adams show that uh, Roberta Smith? No, but it looks uh, this past no, week? but it looks fabulous. But this is, I think, exactly what you're talking about, Elizabeth. It certainly looks photo. Yeah, but he's not. He's not pretending it doesn't. Like he's not. He's not saying this is reality. He's saying I'm going to stylize it. He's not saying right. the photo is. The photo is the same as the real world. He's making it into his world. Right. I'm looking forward to seeing that. All right, uh, Catherine. You know, it's it's about time to start closing up the room. Do you have any final thoughts here, Catherine and Zachary? I just want to say what a pleasure it's been, and thank you both of you, Sharon and Zachary, and and all the other participants. It's been such a pleasure and so um, uplifting. I just want to thank you, Catherine and Sharon, too. And it's really been uh, wonderful to have this discussion and to be here with you today. Well, you know, it's been my pleasure. And I want to, so I want to thank Catherine Howe, Zachary Citrin, Elizabeth Riggle, Peter Dudek, Elizabeth Condon for joining us today. And uh, I guess that's it. We'll we'll see you next next time. Bye everybody. Hi Cesar. Bye everyone. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Nice to hear your voice. Love talking to you guys. Bye. 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 Thank you. Take care. This has been a two coats of paint conversation.